We are in a sermon series on change, and how many of you are grateful that the weather changed? I tell you, it is so good to be home. My wife and I were away for a couple of weeks. Um, We were celebrating our 20th anniversary, having been the lead pastor here for 20 years, and it's been an incredible experience. Not only that, my wife had a milestone birthday while we were away, and she turned 70 years old, and so we're really grateful for that, Um, but it is awesome to be home. In line with that, I want to give a huge thank you to Pastor Pete Bulette from Chi Alpha Campus Ministry on Grounds at UVA for preaching the first Sunday I was gone, and then the second Sunday, I want to give a shout out to my son Peter, who preached for me while I was away as well. So I wanted to thank both of them for that. Amen. And as I've said every week when I get up here to talk about this sermon series on change, obviously fall is a season of change. That's why we're talking about it. Kids go back to school. Oftentimes employment has changed throughout the summer, especially in a city like Charlottesville where we're on this academic rhythm and the university is really at the center of the pulse of our community. There's a lot of things that start to happen through the summer but are really cemented or solidified in the fall, and it's a season of change. It also is true with the weather again. Thank God for that. But now, change, some is subtle, but some is seismic. Some change kind of creeps up on you, but others is massive. It's seismic. It's like the earth moves under our feet. And this morning, I want to talk to us about what's undoubtedly the most famous passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. It's John 3.16. I want to talk to us about that. But as I'm getting ready to do that, I am well aware that this passage of Scripture is incredibly familiar to us. And because of its familiarity, sometimes when we hear a sermon or we hear teaching on Scripture, and it's a passage of Scripture that is familiar as John 3.16, oftentimes people kind of glaze over. So I wanted to kind of challenge you to please stay awake, because John 3.16 is famous for many reasons, but mostly biblically or theologically because of the context of that verse about how God so loves the world through His Son. Now, the warning about familiarity, I had a vague memory, and so I looked this up to make sure it's true, and it is, is that familiarity actually can become dangerous to us because we put our guards down. I remembered hearing a statistic when I took driver's ed in 1980. I took driver's ed in high school, and... uh, I remembered this statistic, and it's about familiarity, and here's what I learned, and it still is true today, and that is, figures provided by the National Highway Safety and Traffic Administration reveal an interesting fact about car accidents. About one-third of all car accidents happen within a mile of your home. 52% happen within five miles of your home and 69% happen within 10 miles. 
Inevitably, what we realize is when we enter familiar territory, we move towards, and our brains are made this way by God, they, we kind of go through muscle memory, and our brains are looking to conserve energy, and we kind of go into a zone where we can do everything by muscle memory. But as with driving, biblically, if we do that, it can be dangerous for us. And so again, John 3.16 is a verse that almost all of us can quote from memory, and yet in it, I believe, is the most seismic change found in the Newer Testament. This story is encapsulated in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. I want to read it for us. Please read it silently to yourself, but let's read. Here's what Scripture says, John 3, 1 through 17. There, now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless him or her are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered very truly, by the way, there are no exclamation points in Greek. When you hear truly, truly, or very truly, that's how an exclamation point happens. So Jesus is using multiple emojis and exclamation points at this point. Very truly, I tell you, happy face, all of that. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit flesh gives birth birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, exclamation point, emoji, all of that, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is speaking of himself. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Jesus there is prophetically speaking of his crucifixion. Verse 16. The verse we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Again, this is a very familiar story and a very familiar verse. Now what's fascinating though is I have preached on this verse years ago. When I did, it was the most searched verse on the internet. I went back to look and see what the top 
searched verses are now. Things have changed. It's very fascinating. In 2018, on the Gateway Bible Program, there were 920 million searches of Scripture on that one platform online. And here was the top searched verse, Jeremiah 2911. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. The Version Bible app, which we have up on the welcome screen every single Sunday, encouraging people to download this. The Version Bible app, if you can believe this, in 2018 had 1.7 billion highlights and bookmarks in their programs with 350 million devices having downloaded that app. Isaiah 41, verse 10, is the primary verse that's searched. Here's what it says. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And the founder of the Version Bible app, Bobby Grunwald, said this, this year's data show that people worldwide are now turning to the Bible for a source of comfort, encouragement, and hope. No longer is John 3.16 the most Googled verse on the internet. There are verses about fear and hope and comfort, although John 3.16 is still in the top ten. Now, what happens in the story we just read? In the story that we just read, the Bible tells us in John 3, 1 through 2, the following. Here's what we read. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God not were, were not with him. What's amazing is this, is that Nicodemus, as we just read, is a Pharisee. What is a Pharisee? A Pharisee is someone who follows every single law in the Bible, and there are 613, and he also follows what's called the traditions of men, where biblical scholars of his day and prior to him have looked at the 613 laws and said, here's how you apply them. The Bible says that Nicodemus meets Jesus at night. Let me give you a thumbnail sketch of Nicodemus's day before he met Jesus. Here's what we know from ancient literature about Orthodox Judaism, of which Nicodemus was one because he was a Pharisee. There were laws that he obeyed every day. Some were related to actions that you do, and others were pertaining to restrictions, things he was commanded not to do. There are so many laws that it's easier for us to focus on the things that he most likely did do. First of all, from the moment Nicodemus woke up, there was a dilemma for him. And that is, 
On the one hand, a person should prepare for their day by going to the bathroom and washing their hands before uttering any ritual words. But on the other hand, he was a person as an Orthodox Jew who would not want to wait to express his gratitude to God that he was alive. Therefore, by the time of Nicodemus, there was a certain blessing that he would have prayed before he moved called the Modah Anai. In it, it would contain no holy name of God because he hadn't washed his hands yet. There would not be a full verse of Scripture because he had not washed his hands yet. And yet the first words he spoke were sort of a benediction for the day. After he washed his hands, then would be the first benediction, and if you can get this, of 100 benedictions that he would say before the end of the day. 100. Moving on. Not only this, but there were three dedicated times of meditation and prayer. That prayer is called the Tefillah. He would have done it three times a day, one in the morning, just after or before sunrise, once in the afternoon, once at sunset. The one earliest in the morning was the longest, the one in the evening was the shortest. And he, if he could, would have prayed with ten other Jewish men, and that's called a quorum. It's where we get the English word quorum from. Reading on, after he did those prayers, he would also pray through the alphabet. Aleph bet, first two words of the Greek alphabet, he would have prayed through that, and in doing so, for every single word of that alphabet, he would have confessed a sin to God. Not only this, as he traveled throughout the city of Jerusalem, he would have given alms to the poor to make sure that he was generous. If he was within walking distance of the temple, he would have gone there to pray. If it was a Friday, he was getting ready for Saturday. If it was Saturday, it was a Sabbath rest. Ultimately, the Jewish faith that he participated in had a law for every moment of the day in order to make sure that God was always in front of him and he would have dressed uniquely to show that God was at the center of his life. Can you imagine if that was your day? This is the man that meets Jesus. Not only this, we know from the scripture we just read that his name is Nicodemus. What's fascinating is a biblical scholar by the name of Richardson teaches us that the Ben-Gurion family was the only family that named their sons Nicodemus. If you know about Israeli history, David Ben-Gurion is considered the father of modern-day Israel. If you fly into Israel, there is a Ben-Gurion airport. You see, Nicodemus was part of the, the Gurion family. He was wealthy, aristocratic, highly educated. He was what we would call a Rockefeller or a Carnegie. Not only this, his name Nicodemus means Nike, victory of the people, and Demas, which literally means people. Can you imagine naming your son victory of the people? This guy was bred to lead. He was motivated to lead. And here we have him meeting Jesus at night. And not only this, we discover in the final descriptor of him is that he's part of the Jewish ruling council. He is risen to the highest 
possible level in Israel of what it looked like to be a man who was educated, wealthy, and powerful. A man who absolutely has his life together. He's the one that meets Jesus at night. Listen, I often say in my sermons that we look for people in Scripture in order to aspire to be, or we find some sense of connection to them. This guy, putting it mildly, could be called Mr. Charlottesville. He is religious. He is deeply moral. He's wealthy, highly educated. He's powerful. He's what we would call a successful man. You see, that's what the spirit of Charlottesville calls every man. And ladies, you're not off the hook by any stretch. He also could easily represent Mrs. Charlottesville. Successful, moral, wealthy, educated, powerful. He's the one that meets Jesus at night. If this was Mrs. Charlottesville, she would be a woman who serves with Habitat for Humanity. She would sit on the board of visitors at UVA. She would serve at loaves of fishes and meals on wheels. She would be speaking kindly of others, and she's living a good life. And this man comes to Jesus and says to Jesus in verse 2, Jesus, or rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God because no one could do the miracles you're doing unless God were with them. Now, that's a fascinating statement, but it's important, and here's why. Many of Nicodemus's colleagues do not agree with him. Mark chapter 3, so we are in the book of John chapter 3, and Mark chapter 3, what we have is the teachers of the law that came from Jerusalem to visit Jesus announced that the way he did his miracles was, was because he was possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And that's how he was driving out other demons. So Nicodemus, among his colleagues and peers, actually has a favorable view of Jesus. And when he approaches Jesus, I don't know what he expected. But when he approached Jesus, he said to him, Jesus, you're a teacher from God. And what Jesus says to him seems like a completely different conversation. You ever notice that in the Bible? People will show up to Jesus and you think, why did you just say that, Jesus? This is one of those. So he shows up, he goes, I know you're from God. The other guys think you're demon-possessed, but I don't. I'm your buddy. I'm your man. And Jesus looks at him and says this. John 3, 3 through 4. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. He must have been stunned. Had to have been. Jesus looks at him and says, lest you are born again, you can't even see who I am and you cannot see the kingdom. Nicodemus, you're blind. And he says, wow, do I have to somehow go back in my mom's womb? How does this work? What's telling, though, is 
is that the word that Jesus uses that's translated born again in the NIV could have been interpreted another way, and that is born from above, born of the Spirit. But Nicodemus is in the natural. He's not thinking spiritually. And so he goes with born again instead of born from above. And it's telling. You see, Nicodemus is a person that looks at Jesus in the natural. He's a great teacher. God is with him. But he's also looking at the kingdom of God from the natural perspective. And Jesus says to him, you are not seeing correctly. And the reason why is you're not born again. Now listen, in our culture, if you say the word born again, people back up. You know, polls have shown that over half of Americans don't want a born again neighbor. It's true. They don't want one. Isn't that fascinating? And yet I know that, and I've been asked at times, I've told you before, when I fly in a plane, I never tell people what I do. Because if I say I'm a pastor, it's crickets for the next eight hours. No one says a word to you. They'll go, I had an Uncle Joe who had a nephew whose cousin was a pastor, and they look at you, and that's it. And they're thinking, did I swear? Did I tell a dirty joke yet? And so it gets off. So I just don't tell people at all that I'm a pastor. It's a total buzzkill. But eventually we'll have a conversation or something, and then if I can, I'll try to move towards Jesus. And if you move towards Jesus, I can't tell you how many times people will say this. Are you one of those born-againers? Here's what Jesus says. Everyone who follows him must be born again. Everyone. When we look at this, we recognize that Nicodemus has a view of Jesus. He's a great teacher. I've heard that innumerable times. Where people will say, Jesus is an awesome teacher. They might even look at his miracles and say, God is with him. But what they don't want to do is truly follow. They want to do that. And here's why. If you were to ask people about born again, they'll say, you know what that's for? Being born again is for people who are the kind of people who are really sinful. They're weak people. They're dysfunctional people. They're the people who need a crutch. That's for people who are so messed up they cannot get a handle on their lives. That's who that's for. And I want to tell you, Nicodemus is none of those. None. He has his life together, highly educated. He's concise. He's thoughtful. He's a man who's generous. He's got all of these qualities. And yet it's to him. Jesus says, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom. You must be. You see, whenever I read the Bible at times, I find myself debating with God. If you were reading John 4, you would discover there's a woman that's been married five times. She's at a well, and she's living with the guy 
that she's with then. She's not even married. So now she's moving towards husband number six. You see, if you look at those two stories, I would advise Jesus, and so would the secular world, that he really needed to speak to her about being born again and speak to Nicodemus about what he spoke to her about, which was the theology of worship in the temple. Jesus, you have it backwards. Nicodemus, talk to him about theology. The woman at the well, talk to her about being born again because she has all the symptoms of being a total wreck. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus takes the best guy in the New Testament and he says to him, you're not in. You must be born again. Not only this, notice that Nicodemus translates what Jesus is saying in the natural to the point where he says, do I have to go back into my mother's womb? Man, he must believe Jesus can really do miracles if he's thinking that. Now listen, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, it means this. I didn't come to tweak your life. I didn't come to make your life a little better. I have come to radically transform the essence of who you are. Being born again means that your life up until this point needs to start anew. And guess what? The women at the well love that because their life's a wreck. And when they meet Jesus, they're thrilled because they think their life needs a do-over. And that's why some of you came to Jesus, because you hit a health crisis, a relational crisis, some type of crisis, and you came to understand that your life was not as great as you thought it was, and so you came to Jesus. You gave your life to him. Hear me clearly. That's why, not why Nicodemus is there. He's there because he's interested in Jesus. He's not there because he's broken or dysfunctional. He thinks his life is fine, but he knows Jesus is someone he needs to get to know. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you are no better or no worse than the woman at the well. You're the same. You must be born again. Jesus goes on in John 3, 5 through 8 to say the following. We read it earlier. Let me read it again. Here's what Jesus says. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, natural birth, unless they are born of water and the Spirit, supernatural birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, we know that, but Jesus says, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying to you, you must be born again. And then Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. The wind, which is synonymous with spirit in the Hebrew mind, the spirit blows where it pleases, when you hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now here's a key thing that you cannot catch as we read that verse. 
where it said, you must be born again. Jesus is now using the plural. He has shifted from singular to plural. So a good southern theologian would read it like this, y'all must be born again. This is important because Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nick, it's not just for you, but it's for all of your buddies too that are leading the nation of Israel. It's for all of you or all of y'all. Jesus goes on to tell him that flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And Nicodemus must have been stunned because to be right with God in his faith means that you're born into the right family that can trace its lineage back to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is saying that's not how it works. There are no second-hand Christians. It all comes from us personally with Jesus. Now, when we look at these texts, we begin to recognize that Jesus says everyone must be born again. Everyone. It's not enough just to say Jesus is a great teacher. It's not enough just to say that God is with him. It's where we move through that we begin to recognize that Jesus is God in the flesh and that in him we can have everlasting life. Every week we talk about feet to your faith. We do it every week. The reason why is faith is to be lived. And the question has to be, well, how does Nicodemus respond? Because if you look at the story, he approaches Jesus at, Jesus at night and he exits stage left. There's no sign of a commitment. But then, all of a sudden, in John chapter 7, verses 50 to 51, Nicodemus speaks up for Jesus. There is a kangaroo court that is meeting, and it's among the Jewish leaders and some of them want to condemn Jesus. And it says this, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? He sticks up for Jesus. But then we meet him again. This time we meet Nicodemus after Jesus has been executed on the cross. All of Jesus' disciples have fled, and there's a mere handful of women that are still following him. In John 19, verses 39 through 40, it tells us this, that Nicodemus buries the body of Jesus. It says, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, which, by the way, cost him a fortune. And taking Jesus' body, he takes it down from the cross with Joseph of Arimathea, and the two of them wrap it with spices and strips of linen. And this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. You see, Nicodemus, who was one of the Jewish ruling council, had met Christ. And out of respect for Jesus and love for Jesus, he follows Jesus to the bitter end, and he collects his body, 
and he lovingly places it in a tomb when all the other disciples have cut bait and run other than a few women. Now we arrive at John 3.16. This is what has happened, and this is the context of this famous verse. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I have a question. Have you put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus? You see, as you look at the Newer Testament, there's a seismic change that has just happened in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. The seismic shift is, Nicodemus, all that good stuff you've done, it can't get you in. And I will guarantee you this, Nicodemus, under the Jewish law, has done more good stuff than you could ever dream of doing. Ever dream. His pile of good stuff is way greater than your pile of good stuff. And Jesus says, that's not what gets you in. What gets you in, Nicodemus, how you see into the kingdom, how you become part of the kingdom is when you're born again. And that is spiritual. It's a spiritual birth through Jesus. And so when we read the verse, I want to read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What a verse. But also what a Jesus. I want to ask you again. Have you put your faith, hope, and trust in Christ? Have you done that? If you've been trusting in good works, I'm begging you to stop doing that, you will never know that you're in. I'm telling you, Nicodemus is proof that we're not in our own good works. What it takes is to put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. Here's what he told Nicodemus. The same way the serpent was lifted up on a pole in the wilderness as a sign of healing for the nation of Israel, he said, so will I. I will be lifted up in the same way. And whoever comes to me will find forgiveness, will find new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask that you would please stand with me. And as we stand together, I want to challenge you. Have you allowed yourself to come to Christ? Have you put your faith, hope, and trust in Him? At this moment, I'm going to ask that we would close our eyes in God's presence. Jesus said, you must be born again. He said it to Nicodemus. That guy that was Mr. Charlottesville, Mrs. Charlottesville. Jesus said, oh no, you must be born again too. If you're here, and you know the Holy Spirit is calling you to give your life to Christ. I'm getting ready to pray a prayer, and I'm going to encourage you to pray this prayer with me. But as everyone here simply has their eyes closed in God's presence, if you're standing here and you know the Holy Spirit is calling you to pray the prayer, I'm getting ready to pray. No one else is looking around but me. I want you to raise your hand as a sign of faith towards God.
where you would say, yes, that's me. Just raise your hand up and then put it down. Is there anyone else? The Holy Spirit's working on you in this moment. Is there anyone else? Just raise your hand quickly. There's a bunch of people that have raised their hands and then putting them down. Prayer would go something like this. Jesus, I come to you just like Nicodemus. I don't know everything there is to know about who you are, but I know that in you is eternal life. So Jesus, I bring to you my sins and I confess them to you in this moment. I lay them at your feet and ask that you would cleanse me and that you would forgive me. Now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill my life because, Jesus, in many ways I viewed you naturally, but now I'm going to view you spiritually. Jesus, allow me to be born again. Give me new life in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.